for themselves in order to save Fluffy. We can love our jobs, finding great satisfaction in what we do, no matter how hard or time-consuming it may be. But when we love someone, it makes all those other loves fade. I worked for someone while I was in college who abandoned everything for the love of her life. She was well-paid. She had a management job that she thoroughly enjoyed. She had a good weekly schedule, better than most of the rest of us. She had consistent days off. She had good vacation time. Uh, She had a company car, great health benefits. She loved her job. She loved her life. But greater than all those loves was her love for her husband, and rightly so. He was involved in a car accident and was paralyzed chest down. And as they got into their new normal, she thought she could hang on to the love of her life, her husband, and the job that she loved so much. There was one day she came home from work and he had been in his wheelchair and had fallen over backwards, couldn't get to a phone, couldn't get any kind of help and had been stuck there for hours and she said, no more. She gave up the career that she loved, the lifestyle that she loved that that career afforded her in order to be with her husband because love makes us abandon all other things, doesn't it? Love will cause us to make all kinds of decisions that personally disadvantage us, personally hurt us, personally cost us so much. And we won't even second guess it, will we? Because we abandon those things out of love for someone. Parents sacrifice their physical well-being, their financial stability, their freedom, and even just the sanity of a clean house in order to have children. Adult children make those same sacrifices to care for their aging parents. Today's passage is about love, if you couldn't figure that out. Today's passage specifically shows us two loves. God's love and man's love. So please follow along with me if you would. John chapter 3 will begin in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who spared nothing for us. 
He gave his all for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love like you love. So, Father, work in and through us through your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. John 3.16 is one of those verses that is so loaded, we could spend lots of time on just that one verse, unpacking it. We did that one Sunday a while back. A while back. Anyone remember October of 2017? I did have to look it up because I couldn't remember. I preached John 3.16 by, by itself on October the 8th of 2017. I remember that day specifically because that was the day I preached without electricity. Now do you remember it? Set up the little podium right down front, spoke as loud as I could, and then in the middle of one of those loud sections, the power came back on. I had a microphone and it really threw me. We could spend lots of time in just John 3.16 as we did back almost five years ago now. And we can do that because by itself it is a very loaded verse. But to really be true to what John is communicating, we have to take more than just verse 16. We have to, at minimum, look at verses 16 through 19, which is what we're going to do today. It'd be better if we would spend time going through verses 14 through 21, but then really we need the whole context of the entire chapter. It was at verses 1 through is it 36. Uh, and we're just not going to do that. Uh, so if this seems like kind of a, a, an odd choice of verses, there is a reason. We, we're taking this passage as it is because it starts with God's love in verse 16, and it ends with man's love in verse 19. God's love is an outward-facing love, a love that sacrifices for the good of mankind. But mankind, in his natural state, our love is not outward-facing, it's actually inward-facing. It's doing what I feel is right for myself, doing that which I like. Uh, man's love is selfish, God's love is sacrifice. God's love is giving, man's love is hoarding. God's love is good, and man's love is evil. Our big idea this morning is that God proves his love, and so do you. God proves his love, and so do I. For God so loved the world, this most famous of verses is rendered in newer translations in a way that is actually a little more helpful. Uh, giving us clarity as to what the, the author meant by that word so. For God so loved the world. In, in our modern understanding of English and the way we normally use the word so in this kind of uh, grammatical order would be to understand the word so as a quantitative word. It's how much does God love us? He loves us so much. Is that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. But is that what John was attempting to communicate? Not quite, actually. Uh, John was attempting to communicate through the Greek adverb that is translated here as so uh, to mean not 
how much love, but the result of love. So a more accurate rendering would be, uh, for this is how God loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Or this one, for God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son. Now, does that really change the meaning? No, but does it give a little bit of clarity? Yeah. God loved the world like so. He gave his only son. Not only did God give, he gave what we would say recklessly. He gave fully. He gave at a great cost. To be honest, I don't think we fully understand the sacrificial gift of the Father. We understand the sacrifice of the Son because He left the glories of heaven. He came to earth uh, and and suffered through the, the normal things that you and I suffer through. The awkward adolescent ages. Yes, Jesus had those. The having to learn things. Jesus, even though he's God and knew everything, he still learned things. Can I explain to you exactly how that worked? No. But the scripture says it, that he grew and matured as he grew physically. He matured emotionally, spiritually, mentally. We understand Jesus' uh, sacrifice physically. We understand the pain We understand that not only was it painful, it led to his actual death. He didn't just pass out for a while. He died. From the Father's perspective, do we understand the gravity of this statement in John 3.16 that God the Father gave God the Son? back up in your minds to eternity past, sometime before Genesis 1-1. And what was there? There was no earth, there was no solar system, there were no people, there was only God. And God was perfect. Three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father is God, God the Son is God, God the Spirit is God, and none of them are each other, yet they are united in a way that we just simply refer to them or him as the Trinity. And he was perfect in in all that he did. He was perfect in relationship with one another. He was perfect in communion with one another. There was nothing lacking. Never conflict. I mean, can we even put two people in a room and and have them never have conflict? Much less three persons in one? For all eternity, they had this perfect, harmonious relationship. But then fast forward to the crucifixion and there's Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity, who has been fully man for 30 plus years, 
And with this time on earth, he had remained one with the Father. He told us so. In John 8, 19, Jesus answered, If you knew me, you would also know my Father. Why? Because they are one. John 14, verse 9, Jesus said, The one who has seen me has seen the Father. So even as Jesus was on earth, he was still united with the Father. Multiple times Jesus states quite clearly, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I and my Father are one. And the Jewish people understood what he was saying because they wanted to kill him for saying it. To them, this was blasphemy to equate himself with God. The thing is, it wasn't blasphemy, it was true. So for all of eternity past, Jesus, God the Son, was united with God the Father, and even as Jesus walked on this earth fully God and fully man, he was still united with the Father until, until the crucifixion. Matthew 27, 46, and about the ninth hour, that would be 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew recorded for us the, the Aramaic, Jesus' um, native tongue, what he spoke as he was growing up, to drive home that these are the words that he said. Think of the power of those words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was on that cross that God the Father and God the Son became separated. At least for a short amount of time. It was on that cross that Jesus became sin. And thus had to be separated from the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. God, during the crucifixion of the Son, God the Father poured all our sin onto Jesus Christ. So the lies that you and I have told, Jesus became the liar. For the anger that you and I have portrayed, Jesus became the murderer. And so on and so forth. God made the Son to become our sin. Why? The rest of the verse is up there. So that we might become his righteousness. It's the only way. See, God's love gives sacrificially. He loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him, not just the Jews, not just those who have made themselves right somehow first, no, whoever believes in him will not perish. We talked about that word last week. Uh, that harsh, abrasive word that means 
to be destroyed and utterly cast out, should not perish but have eternal life. God's love gives sacrificially. Secondly, God's love saves freely. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came to save. Many misunderstand God. Some think of God as the one who is just waiting for you to mess up and say, gotcha, I caught you, like that police officer hiding in an unmarked car, just hoping to find some speeder. That's not God. That's not God at all. People have heard that God is the judge, and he is. And so he must be looking for ways to find people guilty. Scripture is 100% clear, however, that Jesus came to save, not to condemn. John 12, 47, if anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. John 8, 15, you judge by human standards, I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true, because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Are you seeing the pattern here? John chapter 5, verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. He's talking to people who believed in the law of Moses, and Jesus is saying that that law that Moses wrote is going to condemn you. I don't have to condemn you. I don't have to judge you. The word of God's going to do it. He continues, verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? Jesus came to save, not to judge. He came to save freely, that all who come to know and believe in the Messiah, in Jesus, all who come to know and believe in the Messiah as their only source of forgiveness and goodness, they will be saved. Not sort of saved, not conditionally saved as long as you jump through these hoops afterwards. Not the first step of salvation, but now you have to do ABC all the way through XYZ in order to be fully saved. No, verse 18, the next verse actually shows us this binary nature of salvation. Either you are saved or you are not saved. There is no progression in redemption. There are no steps of salvation. One is saved to eternal life or one is not. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. There's no variability in that statement, is there? Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who died for their sins because they needed a sacrifice for their sins. You believe in Jesus, you are not condemned. The verse continues, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The fact of the matter is we start out condemned. That's how life starts for us. But what we see here in verse 18 is that God's love liberates completely. 
whoever believes is not condemned. Positive way of saying it is that they are liberated. They are set free from sin. The fact is we start out condemned. In the judicial system that we enjoy as citizens of the United States, uh, our judicial system uh, sees those who are accused of wrongdoing are, and, they, and it gives them the benefit of the doubt. Someone who's accused of wrongdoing has the benefit of the doubt until the prosecution demonstrates beyond a reasonable doubt that this individual is guilty. That's a good thing, isn't it? We call that innocent until proven guilty. God, the eternal, just, holy, always right judge, has told us, however, that we are already proven guilty. Without Christ, we are already proven guilty. We stand condemned. We stand condemned until such a time as that condemnation is removed from us. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, uses this same legal terminology. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 1 comes right on the heels of the end of chapter 7. Isn't that neat how numbers work like that? The end of chapter 7, Paul's talking about how he struggles with sin. Even as, a, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he struggles with sin. And, and even though he works hard to put sin away, sin is always crouching at the door. But he says, there's no condemnation. That sin that I continue to commit, it doesn't condemn me. Why? Because I'm in Christ Jesus. And he continues, he condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law is clear. We must be perfectly holy as God is perfectly holy in order to be right with God, in order to have eternal life, in order to have, uh, well, paradise with Him. We have to be perfectly holy. There is no well, close enough. There is only perfection or not. Paul writes in the verse that I still have up on the screen that the law's requirement is fulfilled in us not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done in us. God has made it that Jesus' death is our condemnation. And because Jesus was condemned on our behalf, there remains no condemnation for us. That, my friends, is good, good news. There were two robbers who were crucified alongside Jesus. They were actually worse than robbers. History records for us that they were insurrectionists. They were trying to overthrow the Roman government. These two robbers
at least in my mind's eye, they're on either side of Jesus. I don't remember if scripture tells us. One of them mocks Jesus, and the other one says, why are you mocking him? He hasn't done anything wrong. And what does Jesus say to that one thief on the cross? He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. No condemnation. A man who recognized his own sin, who had no opportunity to go out and make amends for the things that he had done wrong. He had no time to make any good works. God's gift of love through the sacrifice of Jesus liberated that man, saved him completely. Right there on that cross. He went from being condemned in his natural state to being uncondemned because of his faith in Jesus. In verse 19, we see that God's love shines undiminished. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. That light is Jesus. And people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We started with verse 16 with God's love. And now in verse 19, we see where mankind's love is focused. God's love produced action, the sacrificing of the Son. The sacrifice assigned righteousness to all who believe. God's love produced action that saves. Man's love in his natural state also produces action. But until Christ comes in and redeems our hearts, our action, our love is evil-faced, evil-focused. So in verse 19, it says, and and this is the judgment, Uh, maybe a better way to understand that is, this is the verdict, this is the end result. The light has come, but people love darkness. Where is your love? See, God proved his love. He demonstrated his love for us that even though we are sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans chapter 5. He proved his love to us. We prove our love as well. Is our love still darkness-centered, evil-focused? Or has our love changed? Do we love God? Do we love his son, Jesus? Has our love been supernaturally changed because I can't just force myself to love God when I love darkness? Has the Spirit of Christ entered you and changed you so that your love is now on him. If you have never trusted Jesus, why not? What's holding you back? Is it pride? A pride that I have to, I have to work to, to off-put that evil that I've done. Or maybe it's a The opposite of that, maybe it's a self-righteousness that, uh, well, I've got this all taken care of. I don't need 
to have faith. Whatever it is, God has loved you. Turn in faith to him. For those of you who do love God, who are believers, show your love for God by how you live, through your priorities, through your conversations. Show him you love him in your hope. Let's pray. Father, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we do legitimately have hope. A hope that is not rooted in fantasy, but is, is rooted in promises. Promises from your word, many of which relating to Jesus have already been fulfilled. And because of that, we know that the promises that are yet to be fulfilled of his return, of his gathering of his church, of eternity with him, we know that those promises too will be fulfilled. So Lord, fill us with hope today. Help us to love you the way that you loved us, to abandon all other things so that we might pursue a godly life. Father, that's not too much to ask. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that this is just a normal act of worship to sacrifice everything for you. So Father, help us to love you the way we ought. When we do, it'll set all these other priorities in our life and, and put them in, in their proper place. That yes, we may love our job and we may love uh, certain possessions, we may love our status in life, but when we love you more, those things just won't matter as much. Help us to love you more. We thank you for your love for us. We ask that you would not only help us to love you, but to demonstrate that love to others around us, that they might see that we love you the way we ought. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.